Our world is desperate for hope. I asked a friend last week at school, he's not a Christian, so I was really curious about this. I also thought if it goes really well, then I could possibly get maybe a 6 out of 10 sermon starter from him. So I asked my friend, what do you hope for? He chuckled, and then he sort of said, well, maybe I hope that the world doesn't end before I die. And I I smiled, firstly, because it was a joke, secondly, because I was a bit smug, because I thought at least a 6 out of 10 sermon starter. Um, So the world wouldn't end before he died. And and I can really understand what he's saying. We all can. Uh, It's becoming more and more obvious that our world is broken and gasping and aching. The peace and the hope and the joy and the love of the Christian message is needed now more than ever. When our news channels and our own lives are met with natural disasters, we need hope more than ever. When we have our health systems struggling, we need hope more than ever. When our culture is twisted upon itself and it's torn by injustice and pain, we need hope more than ever. When we see our world ripped by wars and the pain of sin, we need hope more than ever. When we face uncertain future with the climate and environment, we need hope. Hope that's beyond ourselves, beyond our politicians, beyond this world. Is it any wonder that the best case scenario for many might be that we squeeze out a few good decades before it all truly caves in and the world ends? And that's why the gospel of Jesus has always been Such a beautiful message of hope. That's why the hopeless have always found an amazing refuge in it. The Christian hope's not like the world's hope. We often use the term hope pretty loosely. I hope as a sort of I take a chance on the future. I hope that I might catch a fish or I hope that I might uh, find a car park or I hope that I might find a good dress on the sales rack, you know, at the shop. That's not me talking, that's me trying to relate to my audience here, trying to connect in. I didn't find a good dress um, on the sales rep. Nothing in my colour. So um, hope is not about taking a chance and wishing for the best. It's not about closing, closing our eyes and crossing the highway of life. This is not the Christian hope. Um, I like to tell jokes to my wife. Um, my wife doesn't really like jokes, so... Um, Probably for that reason, I really, really like to tell jokes to my wife. Um, they annoy her a bit, and, but occasionally she indulges me by telling me a joke. And when I say a joke, she's got one. Um, and she really likes to tell it, um, well, when I say, well, she tells it sort of probably once a year. And it goes like this. Um, it's a bit dark, actually, the joke. But anyway, here, so she goes, my, my grandfather was dying. And um, so I told you, it's a bit sad already. Yeah. My grandfather was dying and, and we were all gathered into his hospital room and the doctor said to us, uh, look, he's, he's going to pass away unless any of you know his blood type. And, and we looked at each other and I said, do you know his blood type? And we said, no, I don't know his blood type. And, oh, granddad, I'm so sorry. We, we don't know your blood type and we're just going to have to say goodbye. And it was a really teary moment and we looked around and we said to each other, oh, so sad that granddad's dying. If only we knew his blood type. But granddad in that moment was so encouraging to all of us. 
he looked at us and he gripped our arms and he just said, be positive, be positive. (laughs) What's my point? The Christian hope is not just dying men telling grieving people to be positive. I get so tired of that. I get really tired of it because it can be so quick to dismiss the pain of this world. It can be so quick to deny the reality of our experience. This world's in pain. And the disappointment of our own experiences, that needs time to breathe and to process. Our disappointment needs a chance to die before hope has a chance to live. I don't want to come this morning and just tell you to be positive. I want to sit with you a little bit. And I want you to feel your own pain and your own disappointment. To know it a little bit. So that we can have a chance to know the true hope of the Gospels. One third of the Psalms are laments. Genuine laments. Disappointments laid down and hopes formed in that painful crucible of life. Death and new life are an essential part of the Christian message. It's what sets the Christian worldview apart. It's what the cross is all about. It's why we take communion every week. Without the cross, where else does sin and pain and disappointment go to die? So this hope is centered on the gospel of Jesus. The weight of this world is laid out really clearly in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And this contrast between the heavy wages of death that tangle our world and the freeing eternal life of Jesus is beautiful. We have a gospel of hope and a message of hope. Romans 5 says this, we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. We know suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And I think of spiritual giants in the faith some of you in the room, and they've been so often men and women of tremendous hardship, have lived lives of battle. They didn't escape pain, but they saw it as an invitation to grow in perseverance. They allowed that perseverance to work through into their character and their lives reflect hope. A question for us then is, are we allowing the sufferings that we endure, the room, the oxygen, to transform from pain to perseverance? Are we hearing God's invitation in these moments of disappointment? Are we allowing these disappointments to die? Are we allowing perseverance to grow? Or are we denying the difficulty? We want to have... Characters like Paul who rejoices in the hope of the glory of God. I know this. I've been really busy at work and so in between preparing some presentations for our department and finalising some plans for courses and writing some content, I was trying to fit in this sermon prep. I needed to get it finished 
and I found some good ideas, and I scanned the scripture, and I wrote out some content, and I got a six out of ten sermon starter, right? But I found myself tanked. I was drained by things going on personally with my friends and with my world, and so uh, yesterday morning, I sat for the first time and admitted to God that I actually wasn't feeling particularly hopeful. And with the sun on my back and my feet in the grass, I allowed God the room to talk to me about some of the things that were weighing me down. I felt like I didn't have time for it, but man, I needed that room to to talk and to hear God talk to me and to touch my wounds and to take my pain and to breathe the new life of hope. And I read really carefully the Advent story yesterday morning. And I read of hope being born into our world. And so I'm feeling your weariness this morning as Sam heard himself pricked by the Spirit this morning, that sense of weariness that can sit over us. I ache with you on that. There can be that low-level sense that this world isn't all we need it to be. And so with all my heart this morning, I implore you to draw on the faithfulness of our love in God. Turn to God with these disappointments. His hope doesn't disappoint. It's it's founded on his love. And it's that good love that 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, the love that always protects, always trusts, always perseveres, and always hopes. I want to talk also about the witness of hope to other people. The Christian hope is is this flame, as I've said, that's fueled by the love of God. Um, The reality of Christ in us, it's called the hope of glory in the Bible. And it's a new life that declares our our old lives have have gone. And I uh, just messaged Kerwin this morning, who who Kerwin got baptised a few weeks ago, um, and is an amazing man. And he was talking about Dan's witness to him, Dan, um, if any of you know, Dan, you read, sorry, you talk to people, myself included, and that the old has gone, the new has come. There is such a radical change, a radical new life that can be breathed in through Christ, that it is an incredible hope. It's a hope that promises also that it will never leave us or forsake us. It's a hope that's also in the future, which promises of a new heavens and earth in the age to come. So that flame of hope offers light to others. Christians are called to be a people of hope, so much so that Peter says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Christians are called to be a people of hope. Earlier in the, in the, in the, in the book of Peter, Peter has addressed the church as sojourners or exiles, people on a move. This is a term used for people who basically were without a national home, people cast out of their land, like the people were, the Israelites were in the desert and when they were in exile. They were called to be fixed on the promises of God based on the faithfulness of God in the past and an awareness of his presence now. That's us. We're not from this land, and that's why people will notice that we speak funny. We have an accent of hope. We are called to be involved in our world, But this world will one day be renewed and our hope is not in this kingdom, but the one to come. Looking at the coming kingdom makes us more loving in this present darkness. And because of that, we speak with an accent of hope. 
Uh, John Piper says this, hope is the motion of the blood-bought heart. It's not something you tell them. It's a way in which you live. That's why in the classroom, hope reminds me not to give up on that annoying kid who's given up on himself. Hope reminds me to be nice to colleagues who might otherwise annoy me. Hope is why members of our church work with those in prison or in the criminal justice system. Hope is why Miriam and Brett and countless others work hard to see a better future for those traumatized by the cyclone. Hope is why we started Bay Vineyard Church. Hope is why some of you still continue to support the warriors. (laughs) It's because hope gives us security, confidence, and sincerity. Hebrews 6.19 says this, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. Hope is anchored to Jesus, and Jesus is on his throne. It's a different kingdom, and we're from a different land, and that's where we're from. Because of that, we speak with an accent of hope. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that's in you. To be born again is to be alive with hope. According to God's great mercy, Peter says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Where we put our hope is imperative for how we experience joy. I want to move towards a challenge for us in the middle of this talk. It's the end of the year, and it's a really great time to reflect back on the year and to reflect on our own spiritual formation and to to sort things out for the year ahead. So I'm going to poke around and jab around like a a poorly trained physio and see what hurts. Um, So enjoy this. Where we put our hope, it's imperative for how we experience joy. At the end of Romans, it says this, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. When we trust in God, we are filled with all joy and peace, but when we put our hope in other things, we're ultimately let down. We get disappointment. I get disappointed, and that disappointment can take the shine off life. It causes us to shrink back from fully engaging. We become aware of past hurts and it blocks our future vision. So where do you drop anchor? Where do you put your hope? So I'm not just talking about your behavior. I'm talking about where you orient your heart, where you go where you're feeling tired or bad or sad. Beyond that, though, more importantly, why do you go there? Um, Tim Keller put together uh, this idea in a book called Gospel in Life that is brilliant. Um, according to one review I glanced at quickly. And uh, he puts this thought forward, that despite all the work we can do to tidy up uh, our surface behaviour, beyond that sometimes we're, we're serving bigger idols. And deeper than that, we're serving four source idols. What is an idol, he asks, it's anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give what only God can give. If our hope is in these things, ultimately, our joy and peace is affected. These core 
um, idols promise to anchor our soul, but ultimately they disappoint and steal our joy. They bring us disappointment. So here they are, and here is where uh, we so typically can put our hope. Listen keenly. Um, it's always a great to, admit, uh, to examine these sorts of things and try and find out where your friend is getting things wrong, okay? So um, it's always good. It's always good conversation to be able to have some ammunition for your spouse. Um, so no, seriously, I want, to, I want you to relocate your hope to the person and work uh, of Jesus. Hope in Jesus. So the first is comfort. If you put your hope in comfort, then you desire the easiest path. You avoid struggle or pain or effort. You want things easy in the way you like them. Here in the Bay, we've got a comfortable lifestyle. We're famous for comfort. People shift here for comfort. It's like the Florida of New Zealand. And we've got the warm weather, the vineyards and the restaurants. But if our joy is dependent, well, mostly warm weather, but if our joy is dependent on the comfort we get from our holidays or the warm weather, what happens when those things disappoint us? Where are we going for our joy? Uh, we don't need to look very far to find people uh, throughout Scripture, throughout life, who have endured all sorts of discomfort and barely noticed. Paul's example of singing praise songs in the middle of a prison stands out to me. Idol number two, control. You know if uh, your life is touched by control, if you can't let things go, if your worst nightmare is chaos or being caught out unprepared. You're willing to sacrifice spontaneity and maybe even be lonely, but you just hate that feeling of being out of control. But little one, take your hands off the steering wheel. If you put your hope in control, it's no wonder you feel anxious and worried. Put your hope in God and let the peace of God guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And thirdly, maybe skip third. Oh no, skip fourth. Um, no, thirdly on my list and fourth on yours is approval. Um, if you measure your success by who approves and who doesn't, your joy can be whipped away super fast. The reason I want to skip this one is it's uncomfortable for me to think about this. You can become a slave to the thoughts and opinions of others. The good side is you can be friendly and um, you can, you can uh, enjoy people. But, but Hebrews says that faith, saving faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And such faith believes that God's a rewarder of those who seek him. So I'm saying don't rely on the approval of others. And fourthly, power. This is the over-desire for significance through success winning and influence. If you like power and enjoy having the influence and the spotlight, then surrendering your power for the sake of the kingdom becomes awfully hard. It means you can use or handle relationships to power up. It looks nothing like the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. And ultimately, these four core idols will let us down. They will affect our peace. They will affect our joy. So like I said, having a bit of a rummage around there as a physio, but my hope is a badly trained physio, not a qualified one, Sharon, just an absolute hack. Just, but if there's discomfort or if there's a, something that connects with you, then in a moment we're going to have a chance to, to have a pause and a reflect and to remember over our holiday break that pushing our trust and our faith and our hope to a God who can truly give us peace and joy. 
is the way to go. Hope can mean walking and waiting in the dark. I have in the past few years taken up hunting. As it turns out, one of the key skills in hunting uh, that nobody really talks much about is walking in the dark. Uh, And I remember my first hunt with Matt. We wanted to be up on the hill in time for sunrise. This was in the summer, so that meant a really, really early wake up. So at some point in the middle of the night, my alarm goes and I got up and could hardly sort of see, and I bumped around the house and managed to force down a breakfast that I didn't want to eat at that time of night. And in a minute, Matt came and picked me up, and we stopped in at the petrol station, and I grabbed, um, I, I believe what's called a, a, a tradesman's morning tea of um, a pie and a, an energy drink, and um, for some reason I wolfed it through that back. And then we travelled to the car workers, which is not a straight line. It's a very, very windy up and hill road. And Matt is not a bad driver, but he's not a slow driver. And uh, his car being raised off the ground as much as it is meant that uh, by the time we got there, I wasn't feeling so flash. But he had torches on up the hill in the dark. And I was following a track and had my GPS, but these things happen. I got slightly off the track and we thought, we'll just keep going. We should be there soon. What was an open path soon became us crawling through little holes in the bush. And I remember the slipperiness and the struggle and the exertion. And because I was sweating so much, I took my top off. And then I was getting scratched and it was all pretty gnarly and uncomfortable. And about then, the, um, the breakfast I'd hammered down and my coffee and my steak and cheese pie and my monster uh, energy drink all sort of had a bit of a committee meeting and <laughs> had a chat with the car trip and the exertion and uh, my sleeplessness. And so for a few minutes, I had to wait while they figured things out. And so Charlotte, if you're listening, uh, this is what I do for fun and spend all that money on. Um, But again, it's worth it for the sermon illustration. Uh, It was miserable, um, but Matt was patient and kind and surprisingly gentle. And eventually we made it to the top. And then, brethren, surely as the sun rises, the sun began to rise. The sky began to change colour. The light leaked across the clouds. The darkness peeled back. The orange colours shifted and soon after we had arrived, we were there in time to look out across the mountaintops as the world broke into glory. And to some degree, the Christian needs to get used to walking in the dark. We are a people who wait. We keep on trudging, we keep on sweating, we keep allowing the sufferings to develop our perseverance, to develop our character, to develop our hope, and we keep going with the weight and the pain and the occasional nausea because nothing can stop the dawn. The dawn will come on this dark world, as was beautifully read in the corridor this morning. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, A light has dawned. And don't think that the message is to be a fake, plastic, smiling, happy, clappy, tigger on steroids, positive pants. That's different from hope. Hope is great, but if it's based on nothing, it's annoying. 
and frustrating, and very soon the batteries will run out. The people of God have always been a waiting people, a people who can look past the current circumstances, longing for the dawn where the greater promises of God will be revealed. This is true in the Bible's account of Noah waiting for the floods to subside, Abraham waiting for the promise of a son, the people of Israel waiting for the promised land, David waiting in the caves, the people of God in exile waiting, the people of Israel waiting for 400 years after the scripting of Isaiah, waiting for the promised Messiah. So this morning I want to look at the first few chapters of Matthew. I don't know if I'm allowed to do this with the nativity thing. I think church tradition has meant that we've anticipated without kind of getting to this. But hey, I'm just going to do a, a sort of a bit of a, a, a plot spoiler. And we're going to look at the arrival of Jesus. I want to move through these early chapters. My hope is that you can see that Jesus offers to us the hope of the world despite the heaviness that sits on our souls. So in the first chapter of Matthew... Matthew lays out systematically the generations who have looked forward to and hoped. From Adam through David to Abraham to Jesus, he points to a legacy of hope. And in chapter 2, we see that the people of Israel kept hope through the most evil of human situations. Jesus is born and the crazy, tyrannical king, Herod, hears about the birth. And he wants to, you know, like, like, the wolf in the fairy tale, he's like, oh, bring this Jesus to me that I might meet him. They cotton on to the fact that he's evil, and Mary and Joseph escape taking Jesus to Egypt. He's a refugee fleeing for his life in a sin-sick world as Herod declares all boys under the age of two to be killed. So Jesus' will was not unfamiliar with pain and trauma and disappointment and hopelessness and weeping in great mourning. So the story skips forward nearly three decades. Jesus is baptized by John. It's a powerful, significant, life-changing, and intense moment for Jesus. And he moves almost immediately, led by the Spirit, to the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he faces his own loneliness, his own hunger, his own weaknesses. And Jesus is tempted by Satan. And Satan offers him the chance to remember those four idols, take control, to take comfort by turning stones into bread. He offers him the significance and power of the kingdoms. He offers him the approval of men by being spectacular. But Jesus has made room for a hope that's anchored in God. He's been fasting for 40 days. Jesus has locked anchor. His hope is in the love of God, the words of God. And he's not tempted by the idea of hope, sorry, by the hope of comfort or significance or approval, or control. He's anchored on God. Like, for me, there's such a challenge there. As I read this, you say, do we allow God to the chance to develop that sort of hope through our practices? Do we bring the disappointment, our ego, our weariness to God and the humility of of silence or solitude? In the emptying of ourselves through fasting, are we filling ourselves with the awareness that God's enough? Anyway, then Jesus begins his ministry. Matthew notes this, again quoting from Isaiah, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And Jesus' first preached words are recorded in Matthew as repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is here. Dawn is coming. The Advent story, it's the story of the dawning of light. It's exciting. Again, because it's in a context of people walking and waiting in the dark. There is a beautiful hope in Christ. And it's a hope that comes from the fact that Jesus has said, those who believe in Jesus, who turn from their sin, who accept Jesus as Lord, they're born again into a kingdom of heaven. There is new life that breaks into this dying world. A dying world ruled by darkness. A dying world that echoes with the wails of weeping mothers. This Christmas time, allow the light of the Advent story to break into your world. Allow the light of the Advent story to shed the light of hope into areas of your heart that are still dark, of your family, of your work, of your neighbourhood. And so yesterday morning, I found myself with you on my heart, and I thought about you, Bay Vineyard, and I know the, the disappointments and the pain. I know them generally and broadly. And for some of you, I'm privileged to know this stuff personally. Now this morning, I want to offer us something of a Christmas gift. I want to spend some time in very quiet meditation. I want to do a ministry time that leads you through the first sermon of Jesus that's recorded. I want to give you room to let go of disappointments and hurts and allow us to contemplate the future kingdom of God as promised. In his first sermon, he declares to us more about what the kingdom of God is like, what it feels like, what it looks like. He allows us to shift our eyes off the disappointment of this current world and onto the promises of his world to come. This is a message of hope. Jesus, the one who we've talked about, preached his first message primarily to his disciples. And I hope for us it may allow us to see those first fingers of light touching upon the peaks as a new day of the kingdom of heaven begins to dawn. First, let me pray. Jesus, this world is heavy, and at the end of a big year, our souls are tired and weary in small ways and in little ways. And so we come to you and ask for you to bring healing. We think of our disappointments. We allow time to feel them. We bravely show them to you and we allow you to hold them. We listen to the pain that might be sitting in our bodies. We allow you to touch and heal us. And Lord, we give you our loved ones in their pain. And Lord, we renounce our own efforts. Speak to us about where we turn. Whether it's comfort or control or power or approval that we go to instead of you. Lord, we repent. Let our hearts be anchored in you. Let our hearts be filled with great hope about the blessings of your coming kingdom. Let us hear with grateful ears and believing hearts. Let us allow the hope of your kingdom to bring light to the darkness of our disappointments. <clears throat> 